So we're in 2 Samuel 19 and 20, and you know, it wouldn't, um, it, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if you thought this wasn't the most exciting portion of the scripture. How many of you read ahead? I just would, you know, by, yeah, okay, you should read ahead. Just make sure I'm right. What? I'm, I'm not, I'm not the Holy Spirit. He's your teacher, right? So, so read ahead and get, get prepared. You know where we're going. Um, and, you know, this passage is just very historical. It's almost, we'll, we'll bring up the point again uh, as, as we walk through it, but God's name barely shows up in this. This is really just the story of this ancient kingdom, and it's a tough season in this ancient kingdom. It's a, it's a season where the kingdom is moving towards a, a specific time when, if you're a Bible student, and this is why we need to, you know, cover this stuff on a Sunday morning too, you should be Bible students, right? You love the Lord, you love His Word, well, we got to study the Scriptures, the, the whole thing of it. This right here is profitable for reproof and training in righteousness. Are you with me? Um, so the one date you need to know, if you're going to understand the New Testament and all of the, like, what the, the people who are writing and reading the New Testament works um, first understood, like to, to get a picture of where they've been, the date that you need to know for the Old Testament is 586 BC. Um, there's not very many of us in the room today. Who knows? 586. What happened then? Oh, Fenton knows. Oh, thank goodness. Um, 586 is when Nebuchadnezzar comes down and it's a, it's a, you know, none of these dates are precise as things in history um, never are, but, um, but over a series of a couple years, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he knocks down the temple and he uh, drags all of the, the best and brightest of Judah to Babylon. And that is the Babylonian exile. So all those stories in Daniel, all of like, Nehemiah, you think about Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilding the temple, that's after that. And really, this is such a big deal because the relationship that the people of Israel have with God is set up through these covenants. And the covenant all the way back to Abraham was this, I'll be your God, you be my people. That's a great covenant. By the way, we are his people. We are the covenant people of God, those of us that are in Christ. So I'll be your God, you be my people. That sounds super easy, but turns out there are lots of other gods and ideas that are in competition for the people's loyalty. So you be my people, I'll be God, and then um, uh, here's how it's going to work. You obey me, that makes sense, you with me so far, and you will have land, and you will, have, you will be a great nation, and through you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. So this is the covenant. You stay faithful to me, and here's how I'm going to demonstrate my faithfulness to you. I'll give you the, this land, and I'll make you into a great nation. This is all the way back to Abraham, right? So 586 is such a big deal because all of that seems broken. The people are out of the land. Well, does God still love us? He, we're not in the land anymore. Is God even God all the way over here in Babylon? Um, a, he'll make us a great nation. We don't seem great we just got our tail kicked, and not only that, like 150 years before, the northern tribes got, got taken away by Assyria. Now there's really nothing you could look at and call Israel, even on a map, not so much a great nation. And all of the nations of the world being blessed, like we're not even in a position 
to like be healthy as a people, much less be blessed by the world. And so this is where all of that, the time just before 586, the time during the Babylonian exile, the time right after the Babylonian exile, is where you have the back third of your Bible, of your Old Testament, this prophetic like, God, we've sinned, and God, would you bring us back? And this prophetic cry for a future Messiah who will reinstitute this covenant. Well, 586 isn't really where it starts, though. It kind of goes back to the year about 930, which is when the single unified um, kingdom of Israel that was instituted by Saul, David, Solomon, it breaks apart into north and south, never to be rejoined again. And so really, 586 kind of goes back to 930. But really, 930 kind of goes back to our story today. In our story today, we are going to hear the first times that the word Israel gets used not to mean all of us, but only some of us. And as we've been tracking in First and Second Samuel, I bet you'd say, Grant, it doesn't actually even start here. It starts with David's sin with Bathsheba. That's when things start falling apart. You might even go, actually, it starts all the way back when Solomon, I'm sorry, when Samuel said to the people, you don't want a king. Kings only do one thing with a country, and you don't want that. Don't be like everybody else. We have a king. His name's Yahweh. Let's just stick with him. And you'd be right. You could even say, no, 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 it actually started as Joshua all the way back after the, the time spent in Egypt and God saved the people from Egypt. And as Joshua crosses the river, he begins disobeying like in the second war. And actually they never conquer all of these people in the promised land. There was never this fullness of the covenant realized because the people all the way back in the beginning of the book of of Judges and all the way back in the book of Joshua were not holding up their end of the deal. Or you might say, you know, 586 really starts in Genesis 3, where the deal was, the first covenant was, how about I just take care of you and you just obey me? And our first parents decided that wasn't a good enough deal. And really what you see is a constant whole history of just atrophy and entropy. Things just falling apart. If you were going to look at this from a purely historical perspective, you would say 2 Samuel 1 through 6 are the glory days. That's when David is really established the kingdom he has a heart to build a temple for God. God says, no, you got too much blood on your hands. But there's a heart to be a spiritual leader, not just a, a political and military leader. He brings the ark. So for the first time, the, the place of political power and the place of religious expression where God's going to dwell with the people are going to be the same place. So there's maybe six chapters where it went pretty good, but it begins falling apart immediately. And last week we looked at, at David's kind of response to the defeat of Absalom and, and how he dealt with his enemies, and we saw that there was some, a, lot to, a lot to admire about the way David handled that. There was, he chose peace over war a couple of different times, and yet in the middle of every one of those decisions, 
there was an absolute missing um, piece of it where David never consults God. David never calls a fast. David never sacrifices to Yahweh. He's just being, he's just acting with earthly wisdom. And not only that, but we see, ah, I think David is making some, some compromises here that are going to lead to these terrible dates in the future. So I say all that so we can understand as we approach this that this is just the story of how it all fell apart. And I hope by the time we get to the end of our time together today, we're going to take a look at the one king whose kingdom never falls apart. And we look, and I hope it, by this time in our study of 2 Samuel, and by the way, this is the last of the narrative of David in 2 Samuel. Chapter 20, there's four more chapters, and we might deal with them in one week or maybe two um, coming up here uh, in the next couple weeks. But this is where the story stops. The, the next four chapters are a coda. They're like a, a, a way to wrap up the story and kind of span a great deal of time. This is the end of the narrative, and it ends with David on the throne, but beat up. He's still there, and actually, the kingdom, from a political and economic standpoint, is kind of going great. Israel has been established as a power in the region, and other tribes are afraid of them, and the Philistines have kind of shut up about it, and, and there's power, and there's might, and we'll even see in David's son's time that there's a ridiculously thriving economy and wealth and power in earthly terms are abundant. And yet the reader looks and goes, this is just not what God had in mind when he found Abraham all those years ago and said, I'll be your God. You be my people. So there should be a, I mean, if I teach this right, this will be pretty depressing. <laughs> if I teach this right, if we really read these chapters for what they are, we, we should be yelling at the screen going, don't do that. Anything but that. Why don't you? We would take the voice of the prophets and go, if we would just turn. But let's not waste any time yelling at the people in David's time to turn. Instead, let's save that energy that we might be those who don't turn to anything but Christ. Who find in the Davidic line, the true Messiah and King who does unify instead of divide, who does sustain instead of tear down, who did humble himself and take violence upon himself instead of spreading violence throughout his kingdom. So let's pick up in, in verse 9 of, of chapter 19. Now Israel, that's a good place to stop. This is the first time. And it's not, it, there's been some hints of it before because we know what's coming. But this is the first time, I think, that the author of Samuel is going to use Israel not to mean everybody, but rather to just mean the northern tribes. And that should break your heart. Israel doesn't include Judah. What are we talking about? Didn't we all come out of Egypt together? Didn't we all cross the Jordan with, with, with Joshua? Weren't we all present as David's dancing before the Lord and the ark is coming into Jerusalem? But it says, Now Israel started, um, had fled every man to his own home. 
And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. There it is again, the tribes of Israel. Saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemy and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So you remember where we are in the story. Absalom has just been murdered by Joab. David and his, and his men are camped somewhere near, just on the other side of the Jordan River. And he is making ready to re-enter Jerusalem as the conquering king. So he's putting together a parade. Really, these are, um, if any of you have ever been on a, pl- on a planning committee, this whole uh, chapter is really about planning the, the parade for David to come back into Jerusalem. He is the conquering king. He has put down uh, the, the threat, the revolt, and who is on his right and left matters. Everybody has fought either for or against him, and now it's time to line up and see who brings the king back in to the kingdom. So the northern tribes, Israel, um, are all for bringing David back and recognizing him again as king. There is a movement going around. We just read. Uh, people are saying, look, let me break this down for you in three points. Davis has, David has led us successful in battle before. Like, they're even mentioning the Philistines. He, he's the little shepherd boy that, that killed the Philistine. And not only that, but he's won Philistine war after Philistine war. And, and that's good enough for me. But also, not only that, but he, uh, he conquered the Philistines. Like the reason that we don't have a Philistine problem right now is because David has been victorious. And not only that, but Absalom's dead. And can I remind us that we anointed Absalom as our king? And now he's dead. Maybe that was a bad idea. We might have chosen the losing side. But David won. So what's stopping us from bringing David back? And the southern tribe of Judah, so just your, your Bible, Bible class lesson for today, when we talk about Israel from this point on, I've said this before, but Israel is a weird word in the, New, in the Old Testament because sometimes it means a guy, and sometimes it means people enslaved in Egypt, and sometimes it means a wandering people out in the Sinai Peninsula, and sometimes it means a unified nation or, or a kind of conglomerate of tribes, and then for three kings worth, it means this unified, powerful nation, and then it only means the top ten, the northern uh, ten tribes of that unified nation after it's been divided. And this is that point where we're seeing that division. So the bottom tribes of Judah and Benjamin Judah, by far the most powerful, is dragging its feet, welcoming David back. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where all the leaders that followed Absalom are. You can imagine them sitting around the palace going, how do we play this one? We backed Absalom. Absalom got murdered like a pinata, hanging from a tree by his hair, javelins all through him. That did not work out. So now we're sitting here in the capital going, well, what do we do? Anybody else want to be king? <laughs> David's coming. We should try to figure this out. So they're having a little harder time figuring it out. The northern tribes, they want David to be king. But David would rather be recognized by the powerful people in Judah, not the northern tribes. Pick up in verse 11. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Oh, thank goodness. David's talking to priests. Doesn't that make you feel good? 
Like, finally, is David going to be the spiritual leader? Is he going to call for a fast? Is he going to say, let's all go out to the plains and make a sacrifice to Yahweh? No, far from it. He sends message to the priests and says, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, you remember Amasa is Absalom's general. Are you not bone and my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also. If you are not commander of my army now, uh, from now on in place of Joab. You guys remember Joab? How do you think Joab's going to feel about that? Not so good. We'll find out. And he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. So we see David send word to the priest, but not to sacrifice or to pray or to do any priestly thing, but rather just be political emissaries, to persuade, to negotiate. And he says, hey guys, how come Israel wants me, but my own tribe hasn't called? I'm from Judah after all. Shouldn't you guys have been the first in line to welcome me back? And not only that, Amasa, did I mention that you're going to replace Joab as my head general? What do you make of that? Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? It's a shrewd idea, isn't it? It's interesting. Amasa has led Absalom's army against David, but now David says, ah, Joab kind of ticked me off, killed Absalom when I didn't want to. This is a good opportunity to make some conciliation and ask Amasa to lead the, the army. So the tribe of Judah comes around. They go out to meet David and escort him over the Jordan and back to his throne. But on the way, there's a conflict. And, and the way this is presented seems pretty tense. Here they come crossing the river and they're met. The royal parade is like ready to escort David up to the city and they are met by the people of Israel. And an argument breaks out between the delegation from Judah, which is where Jerusalem is, and Israel. Verse 41, then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan? How come we didn't get to be in the parade? Aren't we good enough? Like we, we, we already said we wanted you to be our king. Why don't you wait for us? Aren't we part of your kingdom as well? An argument breaks out. They go, hey, we're feeling left out. I love how they call the people of Judah their brothers, but then say they're not acting very brotherly. They're not acting like we're all in this together. We should be in the parade too. Aren't we united? Verse 42, and the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Does this seem like a unity building uh, answer? The king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gifts? Look, they're saying, look, there's been no bribing. There's been no underhanded deals. David just likes us better. How does that make you feel? And then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing the king back? So their argument back is, oh, his close relative. Is that right? 
Well, there's 10 of us and only two of you. And we should have more say. You know what should break our heart about this? Is you could read this from the fall of any kingdom. You go to any ancient kingdom (coughs) or modern kingdom, and you will find a division between people who are either from different places or have different ideologies going, oh yeah, well, we're the best and we can prove it. Nuh-uh, we are and we can prove it. And there's just no sense of, didn't God save all of us? Didn't God, weren't all of our ancestors walking across the Red Sea? Didn't we all sin at the foot of Mount Sinai and have to look at the serpent that was high and lifted up for forgiveness? Didn't Moses institute manna for all of our families? Aren't we in this together? Look, if your eyes are on the culture around you, there will be only division. And that has been true for all time, and it's true right now. But if our eyes can stay on Yahweh, if our eyes can stay on God, there's hope for unity. And that's the only hope for unity. This is a time for reconciliation. If, if David was ever going to use his position to have any influence at all. This would be the time. What a few words from David could mean. If David would just stand up and go, hey, I love all y'all. Sorry we didn't wait for you to cross the river. Why don't you you come with me and we'll make a, you know, we'll put a round table with uh, 12 seats and we'll all do this together and we'll all worship Yahweh. In fact, let's go have a sacrifice right now so we all remember the feast that God has, has instituted. But you don't get the impression that David wants unity. David just wants to get back on that throne. And the throne is in Jerusalem. And so David's with Judah. I imagine in leadership, in life in general, it won't be very often before we all have to choose between being powerful and being a peacemaker. Between feeling superior and humbling ourselves for the sake of bringing people together. And maybe one of the big ideas is if you are leading a family, a a church, a business, a school, your friends, you can lead for power or you can lead for service, but probably not both. David, there's a chapter missing here where the sweet psalmist of Israel uses that silver tongue to speak eloquently about the greatness of God. You know, you think of, is it Psalm 78 that we frequently read when we dedicate a baby and we say, oh, tell the dark stories of old to your children. This is a time to tell those stories, to sing the greatness of God. And instead, David just wants power. And you might want your own kingdom but you can't do that and serve others at the same time. Take time to listen to people, to care for the way they feel, or you just pick a side that serves you best. David wants the throne. The throne's in Jerusalem. David's with Judah. And that that verse ends with, but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And that breaks my heart because that's exactly how the world works. The biggest dog wins. Might makes right. The loudest argument is the right argument. 
more capital letters in your email, the more, you know, the more persuasive the argument is. Isn't this kingdom of which David is the king supposed to be the kingdom where that is not true? Where it's not might makes right. And it's violence and fierce words that win the day. But rather, the grace of God. Well, you're not going to believe this, but the northern tribe did not just say, okay, that sounds good to us. Thanks for not involving us. We'll go back and live a good life. Let us know when taxes are due. That's, that's not what happened. And I know that's a surprise. But chapter 20 is the response from the northern tribes. And it starts like this. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. You know, Sheba might be a worthless man, but he makes a lot of sense. David has just said so. Like, hey, I'm with Judah. They're going to be my entourage. I'm going back to the palace. And so Sheba stands up and goes, fine. Bad word. We'll go. <laughs> we'll head north. We'll go back home. You can have your kingdom. You be my people. I'll be your God. Eyes on me. Grace and mercy. It's just not here. The covenant is just, nobody's thinking about it at all. So the royal parade full of men, full of men of Judah, head west and south, up the hill to Jerusalem, and ten tribes worth of warriors head north to go home. The reader can feel the division. This is, uh, this is a, a breaking apart in a profound way. Verse 3, and David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provide for them but did not go into them so they were shut up until the day of their death living as if in widowhood. That's all this says about these ten concubines and the commentators don't have much to say about them either. And I'll say this, I, these are the, the ten concubines that David had left behind to take care of the house that Absalom had violated very publicly as kind of a power move when he took to the palace. David, I think, does the right thing. He puts them away so they can live as widows. They're not in the harem anymore, but he also doesn't reject them or kill them or whatever else terrible thing that might be done. But it's just such a brief little passage. I think the, it, it feeds me. It, it helps me understand that it is a brief little passage because these girls don't mean anything to anybody. And that's what happens with selfish leadership, is people who need to be cared for get pushed aside. It's a great example of selfish leadership leading to hurting people. And so these poor tin women have just been used and abused and now are set off to the side. And that's what happens when we choose power, when we choose self instead of submission to God. Verse 4, Then the, the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together with me in three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went and summoned Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time and been appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, What? Did that freak you out just now? 
Did you think you read that wrong or did you forget who Abishai is? Abishai's Joab's brother, just as violent, just as big a problem. Here we go. Now Sheba, the son of Bitri, uh, will do more uh, harm to us than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape him. So David has rejected the violent brothers, Joab and Abishai. He's given the reins of the army over to Amasa. Um, and uh, right away, there's a chance to see how David and Amasa are going to work together. So Sheba goes north to rally the, the northern tribes in revolt. And David tells Amasa, hey, you better go rally the, the army of Judah. Again, no like, hey, I've sinned against our brothers. Let's go tell them we're sorry. None of that. Just go rally the army of Judah. We're going to have a civil war. And meet me back here in three days. Amasa doesn't get back in time. And immediately, David turns back to Abishai and Joab. Joab's the one who murdered his son Absalom after he was told not to. David is furious with him, gives command to Amasa. And then immediately, in the first sign of trouble, he gives the reins right back to Abishai and Joab. What can I say? David's an emotional guy. He's run by his emotions. And by the way, when we say somebody is controlled by their emotions, what we really mean is controlled by our own pride. Right? We're just offended that the world's not going our way. Just can't see. This is, it's absolutely good and wonderful to have the full range of human emotions. But as soon as we're letting ourselves be controlled by the way we feel, by, our human, by the full range of human emotions, it's really because we think, we're the one that should be making all the decisions. David's an emotional guy. He's run by his emotions. It was his lust that's got him in trouble. It's his sadness that's got him in trouble. It's his passiveness that's got him in trouble. He's, he has these emotional outbursts, and then Joab goes and solves the problem. It seemed like David had finally figured out that this violent Joab way wasn't a long-term solution. But David has one bad day, and he's right back to letting his emotions run the kingdom. And again, there'll be a price to pay. I guess maybe the second big idea as we read this story is, man, you either submit your emotions to God or they'll be in control of your life. I think it's not too far off the, um, off the, the beaten trail to say, we've said many times, David never made a decision for his kingdom to fall apart. He's just following his heart. He's just doing what seems right in his own eyes. Man, you and I either submit our, our emotions to God we either are people who die to ourselves or our feelings, our emotions will control our lives. And there went out after Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. And when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet him. And now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment and over it was a belt with a sword uh, in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And it, when he went forward, it fell out. You can picture him bowing and the sword falls out. And Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother. Uh, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand. Can you picture this? With his right hand to kiss him. So he put his hand on the side of his head, pulls him in to give him a, a welcome kiss. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So with his left hand, the chicken way, Joab struck him in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. 
Joab's a problem solver. This is how Joab has treated Absalom. This is how Joab treated Uriah. This is how Joab has treated people since about the third chapter of this book. There's not a sense of anything but revenge. Do you see how like Lion King this is? How like Shakespearean this all is? How very human this all is? Do you see the kingdom falling apart? What needs to be done? Repentance, mercy, sacrifice, fasting. Call a priest, get the ephod. Let's, let's remember the feast days. Instead, we just have intrigue. It's a great story to tell in junior high, uh, junior high group, I guess, because, you know, entrails getting spilled out is pretty cool. Breaks your heart. Then Joab and Abishai and his brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri, and one of, the, uh, one of Joab's young men took a stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. So just like that, Joab's back in control, in charge. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the, ha- in the highway. That's gross. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when uh, the man uh, saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. Just disrespectful. Joab is just a man who wants power. And David is either too afraid to stop him or it's just that Joab is just too useful to David for him to actually care. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bitri. So now Joab's consolidated the power of the army. We're right back to where we started. I think there's one more observation to make in this part of the story. Where's David? Where is he? Think about it. He's in Jerusalem, right where he wants to be, sitting on the throne. Do you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and David's great sin with Bathsheba, how that chapter starts. And in the springtime, when kings go out to war, David was walking around the roof of his palace. And we talked, and it's one of the most, you know, the the easiest talking points from that story, that David, instead of being out leading his men where he should be, is back home having the comforts of being the leader, of being the king, without taking upon himself the responsibility. Maybe this is, for those of us who lead anything, a family, friendships, in any role of your life, maybe this is a, another big idea, that leadership is a hands-on role. Delegating is important, and being able to train others up and cheering for others as, as they lead, not always being the front man. Man, that's an important part of leadership to train and cheer for others and, and send them out. That's, that's an important thing. But not only is David being run by his emotions again, but he's proving again to be passive. He's just not where the action is. Moms and dads, our kids need us to engage. Our employees need us to know that we love them. Our friends need us to be gently, mercifully, graciously active in making their lives better. Leadership is a hands-on role. And David, once again, is sitting on his throne 
and just letting his generals do what he should be doing. Joab is not the one who got anointed by Samuel all those years ago in the hills of Bethlehem. Joab didn't slay Goliath. David is God's anointed leader, and he just doesn't do enough leading. Delegating is wise and necessary, but passivity is a sin. Being controlling and ignoring the people who are counting on you, being controlling and ignoring, those are both problems of human weakness. So the story ends with Joab once again proving his truly incredible skill in battle. There's a story, I won't read it to you, but, but Joab chases Sheba through all of Israel and finally has him pinned down in a town called Abel. And he builds a surge ramp, siege ramp and, and starts knocking down the wall of the city. And he's Joab, so he's just going to you know, murder everybody. And a wise woman from the city comes out and says, hey, what do we do to you? Our town has a great reputation. We got a whole bunch of wise people in here. We judge, uh, we judge people with justice. Why are you going to kill all of us? And Joab goes, oh, I don't need to kill all of you. I'm just after Sheba. So if you go find Sheba, then we're square. So the people of the city find Sheba and throw his head over the wall. Yeah. Joab is a problem solver. That pacified Joab. Joab's satisfied with that. Everybody goes home, and the story ends with this ominous line. This is how the narrative of the great King David kind of ends. It says, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. David had sent Amasa out to lead, but had compromised and called Abishai. And Abishai turned to his brother Joab, and it's Joab who's returning to the king as his general. What's David going to do about it? Joab has once again proven rebellious. He's killed David's chosen general, but Joab has once again solved the problem. The revolt has been quelled. Once again, might has made right. The biggest dog in the fight won. The ends have justified the means, and victory has come through violence. It's enough to make the reader want to throw up. We're right back to where we started. You start 1 Samuel in a time of corruption where nobody's thinking about God and there's corrupt priesthood and corrupt judges. Now, we've been on this journey for two years. We're still there. It's just corruption. Now we have a corrupt king instead of corrupt judges. Pride, self, sin, have won the day. There has been at least one advancement in the kingdom. If you'll look to 20, verse 23, it says, Now Joab was in command of the army of Israel. There was another list like this earlier in the book. Um, and Benaniah was the son, uh, the son of Jehoadiah, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Alud uh, uh, was the recorder, and Sheba was a secretary, and so on and so on. So apparently, what David has added to the leadership of Jerusalem is now we have a division of forced labor. That wasn't in the list before. And that's the end. That's the end of David's story. Everything is the same in Israel, except it's grown in wealth. David has done very well in establishing Israel as an economic and military power. And now they have a division of forced labor. Now there's slavery in Israel. Awesome. 
Do you see why the prophets longed for justice? I said if I taught this well, it'd be pretty depressing. Do you see the, the state of God's people? Do you see why occasionally a prophet would pop up and say, we have to turn. We can't keep living like this. God is patient, but justice is real. People, will we turn to the God who saved us? Do you see why the prophets long for a time where there would be a good, a selfless, a kind, and a strong king on the throne? And there are two kinds of people in the world today in 2021. People who are still looking for that good, just, strong, loving, merciful king and those who have found that king in Jesus of Nazareth. Can I read something to you as we wrap up from Philippians? This is about our king. Have this mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Could I implore you, could I beg you to give up on any king that is not Jesus? He is the strong king. He is the humble king. He is the one who, although all creation sings of his glory, does not use that power in order to oppress, but rather to save. There is justice in him. Joab's violence is not the answer. David's out-of-control out of emotions are not the answer. Following a king that is not Jesus is not the answer, and neither is following ourselves. Rather, we have one option, and that is to live for Jesus, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to treasure Jesus, and to emulate Jesus. The Old Testament is a treadmill of sin and failure. The history of the world is a treadmill of sin and failure. And I wonder if you would look at your life apart from Christ and go, a treadmill of sin, sin and failure is not a bad way to describe it. We need more than a king. We need a savior. There's one king who isn't passive, who's here for you now, who took the violence of sin on himself. It is by his stripes we are healed. Would you follow him afresh today? Would you repent of following that which is not Jesus? If you haven't, would you be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Would you turn and identify not as anything except a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus?
you think of how David manipulates and, and how he, you know, divides as he's trying to work out this victory parade into the city of Jerusalem. And then you see our Savior in that victory parade on that small donkey. You think about the violence that David doled out in order to consolidate his power. And then you think about the violence that was placed upon Christ. You think about David's lack of faithfulness and you look at the faithful obedience of our Savior as he goes to the cross to drink the cup of wrath that we so deserve. You think about David's fall into temptation and that Jesus was the one who, though he was tempted in every way like us, was without sin. It is Jesus that is exalted. The reason it's helpful for us to dig deep into these Old Testament stories is this is the biggest idea, that the dark backdrop of the Old Testament just makes the brilliance of the light of Jesus shine brighter. Who's your king? Who's your savior? Would you follow him fully?